the 33rd and 34th chapters of the book of 2 Chronicles is the, really the basis of this sermon. I believe there are five prerequisites or criteria that uh, are present before revival comes. In every revival, I believe these are there. And if you study, if you look through these two chapters, you'll find them there. I, I, um, I don't have time to read it all or even refer to it, but uh, that's for you to do. Take my word for it, it's there. That um, in every revival in the scripture or in history, you're gonna find these, at least these prerequisites, these principles. Um, let me set again, by way of review, the, um, the, the setting, the context. Josiah became king when he was eight years old. There had been 57 years of the worst kind of, of uh, conditions in Israel prior to his becoming king. His grandfather and his father were the worst of the worst Manasseh reigned 55 years in Israel and, was, and is noted has the distinction of being the worst king that ever reigned in any nation in the history of mankind. What a distinction. And he instituted, among other things, sorcery and spiritism and witchcraft. And he erected high places to Ashram and to Baal, the pagan gods, and he encouraged the people to sacrifice their children to the pagan god Moloch. And so people would come with their babies and put them on altars of fire. After 55 years of this kind of reign, Manasseh dies and his son Ammon becomes king. He is so treacherous and despicable and terrible that his own servants conspire to kill him in his own house. And so for 57 years there was in Israel spiritism and witchcraft and sorcery and idolatry and the people were materialistic. The Bible says in these two chapters that when God spoke, the people did not hear them. They wanted their own way. And so this boy became king when his father died, Josiah when he was eight years of age. Eight years into his reign, something began to happen with this boy, 16 years of age. He began to seek the Lord. And in the 12th year of his reign, four years later, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem. He sought the Lord and he purged the cities of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah. And he tore down the ashram and the high places. And he ground to powder the graven and the wooden images. And he spread the ashes over the graves of the men who instituted them his own fathers, as an act of defiance to their God and their paganness, their pagan natures. And so with a 16-year-old boy, God began a revival that literally shook the entire population for God. And so God just laid on my heart that I'd be remiss if I talked about revival and did not talk about how to have a revival on a college campus.
or on a high school campus. It, it seems to me that the same kind of God in operation in a day that is uh, uh, drastically um, uh, like his own day, if God could use a, a, a young boy like that, surely there are some of us, surely there's somebody here that God could use in the same manner. Now these five prerequisites, the first two we discussed this morning, we'll try to do the last three tonight and get some uh, evidences of revival on a college campus. The first two were that the people sensed a need. They were gripped, so gripped by the urgency of it that they were willing to do anything, go anywhere, say anything to seize awakening in their land, in their campus, in their heart. And the second was to humble oneself before God. By humbling oneself before God, I mean that man, that a person becomes so preoccupied with God that he sees himself in relationship to him. He cannot see himself in any other relationship except in relationship to God. Now the next three, number one, or number three. There must be confession and repentance from sin. James Boyce says, speaking of the modern church, there is no awareness of sin. When revival comes, he said, people are distressed by their sins and they change and their culture changes. Um, you, you know, um, what we need, I think, today is a baptism of sin consciousness. There's such a flippant attitude towards sin. I mean, after all, you know, we're going to sin, no big deal. Um, the Bible says that if we say we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves. Everybody's going to sin. And forgiveness is so easy. After all, all you got to do is confess your sins. And he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. No big deal. And so a guy says, you know, I mean, what's all this negative preaching? I mean, after all, God knows you're going to sin and he loves you anyway. And you, just like your son, you don't just stay on him all the time even when he does wrong. Everybody sins and God understands. What we need is a baptism of sin consciousness. There is no such thing as a small sin. Sin is the curse of life. It was the downfall of Adam and Eve. It meant that the human race needed redemption from the pit into which it had put itself. It means that sin necessitated the sin bearer himself. Sin is a terrible thing. Sin is the great non-conductor. Sin in your life blocks the flow of the power of God. Sin makes Christians impotent and fruitless. Sin brings a shame to the name of Christ and it is evident that spiritual revival and spiritual awakening is blocked by sin in the life of God's people. 
Now, I don't normally, um, you know, name sins, but I plan to tonight. The most conscious, the most obvious, drunkenness. I know a guy on a high school campus that just always was at church, you know, praying for revival, wanting the revival to come. We'd have a revival meeting. He'd be the guy that brought the most kids. Every party that went on after some celebration at the high school, he was the first one drunk. Immorality, it is not possible for us to be active, sexually promiscuous and active in the back seat of a car or in a dormitory room and expect God's blessing on a campus or on a church. Cheating. Well, what about, um, what about this um, criticism and backbiting and complaining and what about the lukewarmness that exists among God's people? And this caring, for more, caring more for the approval of others than the approval of God. And compromise and lying and unrestrained anger and uncaring for lost people and general boredom with spiritual issues, all have sinned. The issue tonight is not have I sinned, not are we sinners. The issue tonight is what are we going to do about our sins? We need to recognize that we must be cleansed and we must be changed, that every revival found in Scripture is connected and related to personal holiness in the life of God's people and confession of sin and repentance. In 1970, in the campus, on the campus of Asbury College in Kentucky, some of you have read about that revival, started there. They went to chapel that morning and just like they'd always done. And the dean of the chapel service got up and he said, folks, he said, I feel compelled this morning to, to, to disregard the public message that I was gonna bring in chapel. And he said, I, I feel like it's time for us to be, you know, to give testimony, just have some testimonies. And I wanna ask you if you wanna come and give a testimony, come up here and give a testimony. It was a long period of silence. Finally, a guy got up and he went up to the front. He said, I don't believe what I'm fixing to say, but he said, I feel impressed, compelled of God to bear my heart concerning some sin that's in my life. He began to confess his sin. While the leaders on a religious, on a campus, on a campus in a church school setting. And somebody else did. And all over that chapel, they begin to stand. I mean, it wasn't this uh, stuff that we do on Wednesday night where we say, well, I'm, you know, I've probably done a lot of things wrong. I've hurt a lot of feelings. I mean, people begin to confess their sin to God. And that, that chapel ended. The bell rang. But they didn't go to their classes. For 185 consecutive hours, they lingered in the chapel of Asbury College in, in Asbury, Kentucky in 1970. And they began to confess sin before God and repent. 185 hours, they stayed in that chapel. Go to, go to eat, come back. They never went back to class. 
And a revival broke out in Asbury College that affected 40 colleges and universities. And they sent a camera crew out to one of the chapel services from one of the uh, uh, network television stations, sent a, sent a camera man out to, to just take the recording of it. And he sat there in the chapel running that camera and he got so under conviction that he laid aside his camera and went forward and received Jesus Christ as his Savior. There has never been revival that has not been preceded by the confession of sin and repentance from sin. Now, lest we misunderstand what confession and repentance involves, let me quote you a verse of Scripture, Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Now, there are four things that it says in that. First of all, it says not to conceal your transgression. He means to be honest about it. To be honest about it. First John 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves. We don't deceive anybody else. We just deceive ourselves. Be honest about it. I've sinned. I'm laying out my sin to God. I'm going to be honest about my sin. Second, there must be confession. Confession means to agree with God concerning our sin, to say what God says about it, to feel what God feels about it. Now, there are two things involved in that. It involves this. It involves saying, I call sin wrong. I call it wrong. I don't gloss it over. I don't make excuses for it. I don't blame it on people or circumstances. I take the responsibility for my sin. Now, it's not just saying, I know this sin is wrong in my life. It's feeling toward my sin as God feels toward it. It is to agree with God concerning it. This sin in my life is wrong. Now, I know some people who, um, who have sin in their life that are offended if you even suggest that that's wrong. I agree with God. God's word says I agree with him. This is wrong in my life. I admit it. It's wrong. Secondly, I agree with God that Christ died for my sins. For he, he died for that sin. His forgiveness, his blood covers it. He's the only one who can forgive it. And I agree with God that when, he, when I've come to him and I've repented and confessed, I agree with him that in that moment that sin is forgiven and forgotten. I agree with God concerning that. Now watch this. Sometimes there needs to be open public confession for sin. Now, what is the rule of thumb concerning that? Edwin Orr says, the rule of thumb, should I confess my sin publicly, is this. How much should you confess publicly? Just as much, just enough to elicit, to, to, to get the, the prayers of, the, of God's people. Now, now watch. 
If you have sinned publicly and people have been hurt by that sin, you need to confess that sin publicly. If you have sinned privately, you need to take that sin to God alone. For sometimes public confession, public confession is a dangerous thing. All right? Do not conceal it. Confess it. Number three, there must be repentance. Now, repentance means a change in your thinking. It's not feeling bad about it. I mean, you can feel bad about something and not repent. Uh, Godly sorrow does lead to repentance. But the word repentance is metanoi, and it means to change your thinking, and it implies a change of direction or action. It involves forsaking sin. Now, if you come and confess your sin and say you repented and you do not forsake that sin and turn from it, then you've not repented. Repentance takes place when you forsake your sin. Fourth, I'm sorry about this, but there must be restitution or repayment. Restitution or repayment. If you've cheated on a test, if you've cheated, you need to tell your professor that you did. Now, it may cost you a grade, may cost you, may cost you some problems in school, but if you've cheated, you need to go and confess that. I know some guys at the seminary, you know, they'd ask you how, you know, how many, did you read uh, 160, 50 pages? They'd say, yeah, I read 150 pages when they got right with God. I mean, some of them, it was for years later. They had to write their professors to get this thing right with God. They wrote their professors to say, I lied, I didn't do that. If you've assassinated someone's character, you need to confess that. You need to get restitution for that. You need to make that right. Now, I'm talking about some heavy stuff. But, but and I'm also talking about what is necessary for revival to take place and this serious business. If you've assassinated someone's character, make it right. If you've hurt somebody, you said something about them, you need to make it right. Now what we could do when we get home, back to our dormitory room, wherever, is to sit down, take a piece of paper, and ask God in the next days to convince you of what you have in your life that is sin and write those things out. Write them out. And then take the things, steps necessary to make them right. All right, there's confession and repentance. Number four. Now that part is kind of heavy, rough. We're getting into the good stuff. Begin to pray for revival. Pray continuously. That's the word, pray continuously. Now would you picture with me a large reservoir of water. And that reservoir of water is behind this great dam. And they, they allow a certain amount of water to come out of the dam, to flow out of the dam. There's a little trickle, makes a little stream, a little river. And that river runs through the country, beautiful and peaceful and, 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 and calm. And one day there comes a crack in the dam and all of a sudden that reservoir gives way and the water begins to surge down through that river. No longer 
is the river peaceful and calm. It begins to roar. And no longer do, is, the, is the river bank wide enough to contain it. It just takes, sweeps everything out of its path. Boulders and trees are uprooted and this roaring river with this cascading reservoir of water begins to surge down the valley. And what had been ignored or taken for granted now becomes an object of awe and wonder and fear. And people who never came near that river now come, make haste to come and see the great sight. Now God is always at work. Let me tell you, He's at work in this church. It's like a little river, a little trickle of water sometimes. I mean, we make progress, you know, baptize just about 15 or 20 or 30, 40 every year. There's a God is at work, God moving. Let me tell you what God wants to do. He wants to become a mighty river. And he wants to move every obstacle in, 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 in the path. He wants to become this mighty surge of power in, in a community and in a church. And when revival comes, that's what happens. And the people who never talked about God, never think about God now, can think of no one else. And what was once taken for granted or ignored now becomes an object of wonder and, and, and fear as God moves in a community. Now how does that happen? It happens when people begin to pray for it to happen. Never has there been in the history, in, in biblical history or in the history of Christianity, a revival like that that was not preceded by prayer, agony, agonizing prayer. Now, who do we go to for our example concerning prayer? Jesus. Jesus was fully human, fully man. And so as man, and I think we forget that sometimes, forget this sometimes as we think about Jesus. As man, he was totally, totally dependent upon the Father. He was totally dependent upon the Father for his ministry and for his life. And it is evident in the scriptures that his intimate prayer life was the, was the uh, channel through which the power of God flowed into his life. Now, I need to say that again. It is evident that his prayer life, his intimate prayer life, was the channel through which the power of God flowed into him and through him. And it enabled him to do these mighty exploits that he did. And so in the 11th chapter of Luke, the disciples came to Jesus. They had seen him in his miracles and in the power of his life. And they wanted something like that in their own ministry and in their own lives. And they were about to ask him to teach them how to maintain in their ministry and their life such as that. Now, what did they ask him to do? They asked him, Lord, would you teach us 
to pray. For they recognized that the secret of the power and the, of the ministry of Jesus' life was in his prayer life. And they knew that nothing could ever happen in their life that would resemble him unless they tapped in on the power of God. In prayer, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Now look at his life. His life began with prayer. His ministry began with prayer. In Luke chapter 3, verse 21, it says, And while he was praying, the heavens opened up, and the Spirit of God came down. And God said, This is my beloved Son, whom I have well pleased. His ministry continued in prayer. In Luke 5, 16, it says that Jesus often went aside. Often it was characteristic of him to go aside and pray. And his life ended with prayer in Gethsemane and at the cross. And he's praying today. The scripture says that right now he is our intercessor. And the only way we stay saved is because Jesus appeals to the Father in our behalf. And S.D. Garden said, 30 years of living, 30 years of ministry, one momentous act of dying, 1900 years of praying. Oh, what an emphasis on prayer. Now, there's some things we need to remember about prayer. Hang with me. I'm almost through. Number one, don't underestimate the prayer of one man. Don't underestimate that. James says that Elijah was a man of like passion as we are. He was just like us. And yet, he says, he prayed, and for three and a half years, it didn't rain. Don't underestimate the power of one man in prayer. Charles Finney has a book called The Revival Lectures. In this book, he tells about a man whose speech was so impaired, it was, a, it was painful to even listen to him talk. He worked in a shop, a little village. One afternoon, he got so burdened because of the brokenness of the church, the fact that no one was being saved. He got so burdened by it, he decided he'd lock his shop and spend the rest of the afternoon in prayer. After that day, he called a pastor and said, Pastor, would you call a public meeting of the church people on Sunday afternoon? The pastor was reluctant. He didn't think anybody would show up. But he went ahead and called the meeting. They had such a crowd of people that just came to the meeting, not knowing what it was about. They couldn't seat them all. And it was just a time of silence for a while. And finally one man began to sob and he said, is there anybody here who will pray for me? And they began to pray for him. And another and another. And in every quarter of that town, People were revived and saved on that one day. And each one of them said later that they became conscious of their sinfulness. You guessed it. That very hour that man closed his shop and began to pray. Don't underestimate 
prayer of one person. And if one person has power in prayer, then two people are twice as great. Jonathan Edwards, who was the product, who was the instrument of the Great Awakening, said when God gets ready to do something great with His people, He sets them to praying. Listen to this story. In 1857, a group of college people, listen to this, a group of college people and those who had just graduated from college decided, become, became burdened for revival and they launched a daily prayer meeting in 1857. At first, only a few attended, but they were not discouraged. They continued. Soon the room contained 20, 30, 40, 60. The fervency of prayer increased. One can sense an explosion about to occur. In March, four months after they began to pray, J. Edwin Orr describes it for us. At first, only the small room was occupied with a few in attendance. Then it became, became overflowing and the meeting moved to the main auditorium. Meetings started there on the 10th of March. 2,500 seats were provided and they were filled to overflowing. They didn't come to church, they came to pray. The sponsors next moved a partition from the main floor space and platform. Next, the floor platform and lower gallery. Then floor platform and both galleries filled up fully 6,000 people gathered daily. For months on end, each separate church was opened at least each evening. Some of them as often as three and five times a day and all were filled. Simple prayer, confession, Exhortation and singing was all that happened. But it was so honest, so solemn, the silence so awful, the singing so overpowering, the meetings were unforgettable. In order to continue the work which flooded churches with inquirers and converts, a big canvas tent was bought for $2,000 and opened for religious services on May the 1st, 1858. During the following four months, an aggregate of 150,000 attended the ministry under the canvas, many conversions resulting, so that the churches of Philadelphia in four months reported 5,000 converts. It all began just a few people praying. Now if there's a place tonight where revival is happening, it's in Korea. Listen to this. It is said that the church in Korea is growing at a rate of 6.6%. .6 and by the year 2000, in this Buddhist country, it is estimated that 42,000 Koreans will be Christian. Amazing. Since 1971, in 1971, only 10% of the population named Christianity. You know how it began? Four missionaries of four different denominations decided they would spend one hour at noon to pray. And they started praying and nothing happened. One of them said, why don't we just pray at home? You know, we can do just as much good at home. 
But the others said, no, let's don't stop. And so they continued praying. It wasn't long until the blessing of God began to be poured out. On one church in Korea, in one month, there were 2,000 heathens converted to Christ. Now this is contemporary. I mean, this is happening now. It wasn't, you know, in 1857. And in this church, listen to this phenomenal story. In this church, they called a prayer meeting and asked that the people who wanted to pray for God to save Korea to meet at the church at 4.30 a.m. for prayer. And 500 people showed up early. It wasn't long until there were 600 people meeting for prayer at 4.30 in the morning. And the heathen people came to see what was happening and they shouted, the living God is among you. Now remember this. When it is four o'clock a.m. in Korea, I don't know when that is, but let's just say if it were the same as ours, at four a.m. in the morning, there will be Thousands, I'm not, this is not ministerially speaking, there will be thousands of people needing to pray. And I spoke at a convention in Seattle about two summers ago, and a guy told me that his wife was on one of these mission trips to Korea and went to where this church, where this revival began, where 2,000 were saved in one month. And she said, they asked her to go up what they call Praying Mountain to pray the next morning. She was to go up at five o'clock in the morning. And she said, when I woke up, I could hear sleet pelting against the window. And she said, it was bitter cold. And I decided I'd turn over in the bed and go back to sleep. It was cold. But she said, I couldn't go to sleep. So I dressed and I went up Praying Mountain to pray. And she said they recorded people's names when they went, got there you know, to pray. They, they signed in and she said, there had been over a thousand ahead of me on that morning. There can be no revival without the flowing of the power of God through the channel of prayer. Criteria number five, and I just want to brush it, that I'll quit. That is to call people to prayer. Now you can be prayer, you can be a prayer, you can engage in prayer, but are you calling people to pray? Are you calling people to pray? Tomorrow in the dormitory rooms of Southeastern, is there somebody who will call the people prayer and stay with it. Will you call people to prayer in your home? Will you get you a prayer partner? Will you find somebody? Will you call people to prayer? Now, could I just mention, I'll take about five minutes to do it. I don't want to quit without mentioning the results of revival. There are four. As it relates to this text, the first is that there was a change 
in the life of the believers, there was holiness. Their life changed. Their culture changed. You can't have revival and go back to what you were. Now God, when he saved you, the old bond, the old Nazarene evangelist used to say, when I got saved, God didn't fix it so I would never sin, but he did fix it so I'd never enjoy it. When you get revival, you can't go back to what you were. There is a change. In 1950, the Hebrides, the south of Wales, experienced revival. Let me tell you what happened. Listen to what happened. It says, the influence of the revival upon life in Wales was beyond calculation. Crime was so greatly diminished that magistrates in certain counties were presented with white gloves signifying they had no case to try. Drunkenness was cut in half. A wave of bankruptcies swept the taverns of the principality. Profanity was curbed until it was said that the pit ponies in the mines could not understand the orders. Isn't that amazing? Throughout the revival and for many months afterward, all the churches of Wales were crowded with worshipers, not only on Sundays, but weeknights as well. Extraordinary conversions were reported and the most unusual instances of restitution of wrong. There was such an improvement in public morals that local authorities met to discuss what to do with the police forces, unemployed on account of the revival. All were agreed that the ethical transformation was unbelievable. Wouldn't you like to see that? Oh, Lord, do it again. Second, there was an obedience, there became an obedience to God and to His Word. An obedience to God and to His Word. And the Scripture says that they discovered the scroll and Josiah said, take this scroll up. This is God's Word and we're going to begin to live by it. Number three, there was increased power from God. Jack Taylor says, revival is just simply the release of the life of Jesus in us. A.J. Garden said, God is ready to give you His power as soon as you're ready to obey Him. You can expect power to defeat fatigue, power to stick by it, power to lead people to Christ, power to disciple them, power to overcome temptation, power. Finally, you can expect a great movement of God's Spirit in evangelism. Now last two years ago, I think we were close to revival in this church, in this town. I don't know what happened, but I think we were close to revival in this town. And I'll tell you, it was a thrill to get up and preach Sunday morning and Sunday night. Same old sermons. And people just kind of wander in. Not, not people we'd been witnessing to, People just kind of...